We uh, take a look tonight at, uh, uh, I don't know, I think the beginning of the end was probably Solomon. So maybe this is the end of the beginning. We have uh, Solomon coming to, uh, to the end of his reign, and we have his son Rehoboam uh, picking up his reign. So um, as we take a look, Second Chronicles uh, will be in uh, chapter 10. You remember last time we ended up chapter 9, it said, uh, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all of Israel, 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So as we look, Solomon's reign has ended. Now God made a promise to Solomon. He actually, he made a promise to David. And the promise he made to David was, David, because you followed me like a man after God's own heart, then I'm going to be with your son no matter what. I'm not going to turn my back on him. I'm not going to give up on him. I'm going to walk with him all of his days. So Solomon had a long reign, fruitful reign, uh, multiplied horses, multiplied wives, multiplied gold, all things God told him not to do, all things God said not to do because... They'll turn your heart from trusting in the Lord. Well, same issue today. I mean, we may put a different uh, title on it than uh, gold uh, horses and wives. But you see, Jesus tells a parable in the Gospel of Matthew. He said that the Father sent out invitations to come to the wedding. And uh, people were turning down the invitations. And the three reasons that people turned down the invitations were... One, I got new property. Can't come. Please excuse me. Two, uh, I got a new wife. Please excuse me. Three, I got a new team of oxen. I need to try them out. Please excuse me. So the Lord said, hey, these three folks, they're not coming. The invitation is not going out to them. He said, send out the invitation to the highways and byways. Invite all the people out there, uh, anywhere you can find them, whosoever will, to come to the Master's Feast. It's a a parable describing the, the call to salvation, the call to walk with God, and the three reasons why people refuse that call. are still the same three reasons God told the king to be careful. Gold, property, stuff. Those things can choke out the fruitfulness of God's Word, right? When Jesus told the parable of the sower, what did He say? He, he, he gave us, He said, three-fourths of all the seed that goes down doesn't work. 75% failure rate. That's bad. He said that one of the things specifically was the cares of this world would choke out the fruitfulness of the word. The cares of this world. The same thing that happened to Solomon. Solomon, the wisest guy on earth, it's one thing to know what's right and it's another thing to do what's right. Right? We know that? All of us know what's right when we get into cars and we start driving. We don't always do what's right. Do you? You're not going to lie in church, are you? That's bad. So... We can understand how somebody can be wise and then not walk 
according to that same wisdom. And one of the things we see Solomon do is, is all those things. He heaps up gold. The Bible says he had so much gold that they stopped counting the silver because it was worthless. They had a lot of gold. He multiplied horses, got horses from Egypt. He became a horse trader. So he actually became like a chariot uh, dealer. Uh, He would buy horses from Egypt and chariots from another place, put them together and sell them to a third party. So he had himself a nice uh, uh, used car, new car lot that was turning into profit. And then he had all these wives and majority of them he probably made for political reasons, but you don't need that many alliances, right? I don't think so. Should, should be an end to it all. So Solomon finishes his reign and God fulfills his promise to David. He said, I'm going to stay with him. But after his reign, I'm going to hold the children of Israel accountable. See, God holds his people accountable. That's, well, that's what love is. What does the Bible tell us in Proverbs? The Bible tells in the Proverbs that if you love your children, you will discipline them promptly. That means that there is a time when if we're loving and we know our children are getting off track, we do something to get them back on track, right? We do something. We, we find a way to correct the behavior. The Bible tells in the book of Hebrews, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. It tells us that not only does God discipline every son he has, but he also scourges them. Scourges. If there's a harsher word word for a, getting a whooping, there, I don't know of what it would be. But what in what uh, parentheses does the Bible put this behavior, this discipline, this judgment of God? It puts it under the the umbrella of love. In the Song of Solomon, the the Lord declares, "I am my beloved, and He is mine. His banner over me is love." But that doesn't mean because I love somebody, I just let them do whatever they want. If God allows the children of Israel to continue down a road in rebellion against Him, and they spend eternity out of His presence, you tell me how that's loving. If God chastens them and their life down here is rough and hard and difficult, but they're able to cling to the Lord because all their life they have to reach out and hold on to Him, and they make it home safe, I would say that was loving. Some people looking from the outside can't recognize that. They think, if my life is easy, that's loving. I don't think that's true. So I think that's what we see as we come to Rehoboam in chapter 10. Rehoboam, uh, the eldest son of Solomon, says, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. That's what they always did. They went to Shechem. All of Israel gathered to you know, give their support to the king. And says, so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, that Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Now, if we're gonna, if we're gonna understand that, then we gotta back up and remember Jeroboam. It's been a while since we talked about Jeroboam, so hold your finger here and turn to the left. We're gonna turn to the left and we're gonna go to, to 1 Kings chapter 11. It's just like two books. First Kings 11. 
Now we'll pick it up. Uh, verse 28. Oh, let's go to 26. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zerada, whose mother, whose mother's name was Zariah, or Zariah, the widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all of the labor force of the house of Joseph. And it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. And he had clothed him with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of that new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Why? Because they have forsaken me. And they worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, to keep my statutes or my judgments, as did his father David. When we look at that, there's a couple things I want you to, to kind of take away from it. One, remember when Joshua first conquered the land and God told him, push all the people out of the land? The purpose for, for that was so that the infection of idolatry that was in all those peoples would not infect the children of Israel. But rather than pushing them out, the children of Israel used them as their labor force. Uh, they made them slaves. And so their slaves continued to worship the gods that they had. Now what would happen is, uh, an Israelite would be out and he'd be checking out his servants and he'd notice that they were doing worship a little different than he had. So they, they'd ask some questions and then, so the, the, the Jewish guy thinking, well, you know, I don't know what it would hurt for me to have more than one God on my side. So he begins to add the worship of these other gods into the worship he already had with the one true God. And that idolatry began to creep into the children of Israel. And that idolatry became a big problem. Now, at this point, God is telling Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah. He says, listen, I'm going to divide the kingdom because they have idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, let's, let's break it down to the simplest terms so you can understand it. If you've ever had a boyfriend a girlfriend, a husband, or a wife. And you're willing to share them, him or her, with every other man and every other woman, then you can't understand what idolatry is. But if sharing them with other men or women would cause a problem in your relationship, which normally it does, now you understand idolatry. You see, God says when we commit idolatry... It's exactly the same as a husband or wife cheating on their spouse over and over again. In fact, God would call himself concerning the nation of Israel. He said the nation of Israel is his wife. When he talks about our relationship to Christ, how does he describe that? He calls us the bride of Christ, right? 
So he, he in Ephesians chapter 5 and throughout Deuteronomy uh, and Isaiah and many of the prophets, he describes our relationship, man's relationship with God in similar terms as a husband and wife. And if a husband or wife cheats on the other, that's a problem. The Bible describes that as idolatry. So when there are other gods, God sees that as a pretty big issue for him. So because of this issue, he says, look, I'm going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to bring judgment, not as punishment against what they've done, but as an effort to turn their eyes back to him. For example, you're you're worshiping other gods. And in the meantime, God's been blessing and God's been moving in your life and doing other things. But now the Lord wants to really put your attention on the fact that your relationship with him is divided among other interests. So what the Lord does is he now withholds his blessing. And he says, pray to those other gods. When the enemy comes against you, pray to the other gods. And let them save you. Oh, they're not saving you? That's because they're not real. I'm real. And I want how much of your heart? What does God say? I want all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13 says you will find him when you seek him. How? With all your heart. Deuteronomy in the great Shema. The Shema. What does he say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God. How? All your heart. Does that mean there's other space in your heart for something else? So in light of that, has that changed in the New Testament? When Jesus came, didn't He say, you got to love me more than anything else in your life? Now, is there grace in that? What do you think? Is there grace? We talked about that, right? You guys remember that fellow Peter. And Peter at the Sea of Galilee, after he had denied Christ three times, everybody remember the story? And Jesus came to him and said, Peter, do you agapeo me? Agapeo, do you love me with self-sacrificing love? An all-consuming love that gives wholly for the sake of giving. You remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, I phileo. That's the love of a friend. Jesus didn't say, well, Peter, come back to me when you get that worked out, because I need all your heart. What did he say? He said, tend my sheep. Then the Lord said to Peter a second time, Peter, do you agapeo me? And Peter responded for the second time, Lord, I phileo. Tend my lambs. He gave him more responsibility. The third time the scripture says Peter was, 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 his heart was broken because God came to his level and said, Peter, do you phileo? Peter said, you know all things, Lord, you know, I want to agapeo, but phileo is where I'm at. Is there grace? There's grace. And God gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom, right? Didn't he preach the first gospel? Didn't he bring forth the beginning of the church? Sure he did. And was the love that he had in his heart perfect? Not at that time. Did it get that way? I think it did. See, agapeo is a self-sacrificing love. How do I know Peter had agapeo? Because one day the Romans nailed him to a cross and all he had to do to get off the cross was say, I don't love God. He got there. 
God had grace for him. But part of the point, I think, in the story is that Peter is wanting it. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? But when God's people don't even want it, they don't care, they're not thinking, he's an afterthought. Then God brings discipline into the life of his people to turn their eyes back on him. That's love. It will always be love. If I see someone running and jumping off a cliff and I let them go, that's not loving. If I see somebody running and jumping off a cliff and I try to stop them, even though I may fail, that is. If in the effort to try to stop them from jumping off the cliff, I tackle them and they break their leg, it was loving. Wasn't it? So we've got to have the right mindset as we look at the judgments of God so that we can understand them. Now let's continue to take a look at what's going on with Jeroboam. It said, uh, uh, I'm going to give you these, these ten because the children of Israel have forsaken me. In verse 34, However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David. Remember I told you? God made a promise to David that he would... Honor Solomon no matter what he did. So God said, I'm keep my promise to David uh, because he kept my commandments and my statutes. I wanted to make a, a quick um, emphasis on that. Commandments are the laws of God. How many of us have kept the commandments of God? In case you think you kept the ten, there are 613 commandments. So <laughs> chances are you broke one. And the Bible tells if we broke one, what are we guilty of? We broke them all. What are the statutes? The statutes is what God provided for the covering of our failure. Do you get what I'm saying? So when we look at the commandments and the statutes, the commandments are like those His requirements, and the statutes is what to do when I break them. So what were the children of Israel to do when they broke the commandments? They had a sacrificial system, right? And that sacrificial system was to cover their sin until the Messiah. They knew it. They knew the sacrificial system didn't remove their sin. They knew they were putting it on God's charge account until Messiah came. But when you don't care about His commandments and you don't care about His statutes, not only are you not walking in obedience to His law, but you don't care to make the relationship right with God. You get what I'm saying? So because they had ignored these things, the Lord says, look, I'm going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to divide the kingdom. He said in verse 35, But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you. Ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart's desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And it will be, listen, if you heed all that I command you, if you walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. So God takes Jeroboam, this guy who was over the slaves that Solomon hired to build all the stuff that he built, and he tells Jeroboam, look, I'm going to give ten tribes to you. Well, if you will, walk with me. 
if you will keep my commandments and my statutes. If when you fail, because he said, just like my servant David. You saw that, right? Just like my servant. Was David perfect? Did David ever sin? Uh, we, we still talk about David's sin today, don't we? How would that be if everybody talked about your sin 2,000 years after you did it? You'd like to say, you know, sooner or later, Lord, are they going to forget all that stuff I did? And God says, no, I wrote it in a book. So they're not going to forget it, at least not till they get here. So he says, look, I, my servant David, he wasn't perfect. He didn't do everything right. He, he, it wasn't, it wasn't, but what did he do? When he sinned, he kept his statutes. He made his offerings. He looked to the Lord and said, God, I know I'm a sinner and I need your covering. I know I'm a sinner. I need your covering. It's no different than salvation today. There's no salvation if you don't know you're a sinner. And you don't know that you need a covering from God. It's the same exact thing. So he makes this promise to Jeroboam. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you all. I'm going to do all this stuff for you. Everything will be cool. You just walk with me. He says in verse 39, And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. And Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, so Jeroboam fled to Egypt. So Solomon, rather than getting straight, he wants to kill the guy God's using. Does that remind you of somebody else? You remember Israel's first king? What was his name? Saul. Saul. Yeah, Saul. And Saul had a problem following God's commandments and walking in his statutes, didn't he? And so when he failed, God raised up another king to give the kingdom to. His name was? David. And how did Saul and David get along? Not very well, right? Rather than Saul coming to a point where he would repent, he continued in his rebellion against God. And we see the same thing in Solomon. Solomon at the end of his life, trying to wipe out the guy God's going to use. Now, Jeroboam has two paths before him, right? God said, you can walk with me or you can choose not to walk with me. So the kingdom is going to divide. We know that that's going to happen. When we go back to, to 2 Chronicles chapter 10, we can read all about it. It says, now, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard, now Solomon's dead and Rehoboam's a king, Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent for him and called him, and Jeroboam and all of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. And he said, Your father <coughs> made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father in his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Come back to me in three days, and the people departed. So Jeroboam comes, to whom God had promised ten parts of the kingdom, but he tries to make a deal with Rehoboam. Hey, look, release us from service. They were still in the king's service for building the stuff that Solomon had built. Solomon's done building. Let us go. Let us go. Let us go back to our lives and stop being under under your, your control. It's time to let it end. So it says, King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he yet lived. And he said, how would you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you are kind to these people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice with the elders, which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? 
So the young man who had grown up with him spoke to him and said, Thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you. Your father made uh, our yoke heavy, but you shall make it lighter on us. Thus you will say, My little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed. And the king answered them roughly. King Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from God. you see that? For the turn of events was from God. A lot of people stumble over the concept of the sovereignty of God. So, and, and I understand that it can be somewhat difficult to understand, but let me try to lay it out to you very simply. God is always in control. And you always have free will. And the two are absolutely true all the time. Now, people stumble over that concept, so let me make it simple for you. I had a foreign exchange student who lived with me from Germany for several months. His name was Florian. Florian was an amazing chess player. And I told you guys before, Florian taught me how to play chess. I finally beat him one time before he went back to Germany. Now, when I coached football in California, we had an autistic kid on the team who was a savant. A savant is a child genius who who sees numbers in his head, you know, you can ask him crazy questions. And he don't have to think, he just knows the answers. And so he was uh, unbelievable in chess. He, he could play three, four chess matches at the same time. So I sat down to play him. Now I think I, I know a little bit about chess. I had free will. I could move any piece anytime I wanted. But somehow I just kept falling into whatever trap he laid. Whatever he wanted me to do, I ended up doing. It was amazing. I could choose any piece. I could close my eyes and grab a piece and move it. But he had an answer to it. Now, in human terms, that's not quite the same thing. But God, in His sovereignty, is able to work out His perfect plan even though you are able to freely choose. The Bible says... He has elected us or predestined us according to His foreknowledge. That means God knows how to stay a couple moves ahead of us because He knows the moves we're going to make. There are moves to make. But He knows what they're going to be. So the Lord knows the kingdom's going to divide. He knows Rehoboam's not going to take the advice of His people. And it was all part of God's plan to do what? To chastise the people so that when they entered into a time of difficulty, they would choose to turn to the Lord. And that God would meet them right where they were at. So this is what he's trying to, to, what what God's trying to accomplish in his life. So the king did not listen. So that says, uh, for the turn of events was from God that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he had spoken by the hand of Ahijah, the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king and said, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. Every man to your own tents is a cry of rebellion. Basically what the people are saying is, we're not following you. You can call yourself king, but if the people don't follow you, you're not king of much. So, this is what the people are saying to him. Well, it says all of Israel departed and went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt where? In the cities of Judah. So you have the division right now of the kingdom. The division of the kingdom, you have the northern kingdom. They're going to be called Israel most of the time. Sometimes God refers to both as Israel because as far as God's concerned, they're all still his kids. The northern kingdom is going to be called Israel. The southern kingdom is going to be called Judah. The northern king is going to be Jeroboam. The southern king is going to be Rehoboam. You want to make it easy for yourself? J comes before R. So J is on the north. And R is in the south. Jeroboam, Rehoboam. The vision of the two kingdoms is taking place right here. But Rehoboam, the king, sent Hadoram, who was in charge of revenue. Now, this is a genius move by the king. And I kind of feel sorry for Hadaram. Hadaram is the, the tax collector for the king. And the king sends him to the northern kingdom. Why? If you're trying to make peace, let's say Texas secedes from the union. And the president wants to make peace with Texas. He's not going to send the IRS to do it. Is he? Probably not, right? But that's what Rehoboam does. He sends the IRS. When the IRS gets there, the verse tells us, when he got there, the children of Israel stoned him with stones and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Division of the kingdom. Just like God told Jeroboam it would happen. Now, in chapter 11, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem... He assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel that he might restore the kingdom of Rehoboam. So Rehoboam gets back and he says, look, I don't know what those guys are talking about, but the two most fearsome tribes in war were Judah and Benjamin. And they're still together. So he puts 180,000 of his best warriors. That's a pretty formidable army at that time. And he said, I'm going to go, you know, fix their wagon. I'm going to get these guys back in line. So Jeroboam gathers this army to accomplish this. But look what it says in verse 2. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all of Israel and Judah and Benjamin, and say, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your brother. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jeroboam. I love that. 
rather than allowing the children of Israel to continue to go and, and fight against one another and brother against brother, the Lord said, look, stop, this is from me. This is part of the judgment that I'm doing in your life, the chastisement, the spanking to get your eyes back on me. So don't fight. He told the children of Israel the same thing when they went to Babylon. Later on, we're going to see the northern kingdom conquered by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom conquered by the Babylonians. When the southern kingdom is conquered by the Babylonians, God tells them, stop fighting, put down your swords, surrender, go to Babylon, make a life. This is from me. How important is it for us to begin to understand that the events that shape our life must pass through the hands of a God who loves us? Rather than thinking there's some type of random occurrence that's trying to destroy us. God says, my thoughts are, are, are not of evil to destroy you. But my thoughts are good to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that what he told Jeremiah? Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Well, that's during the Babylonian captivity. God says, I know what I'm doing. Just go and live. Stop fighting. Live your life. Trust in me. My thoughts are not your thoughts. He says in Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how high my ways are over your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. Learn to trust me. In Isaiah 55, last night when we were in discipleship, we talked about it. Isaiah 55 said, why are you wasting your time trying to buy food that doesn't satisfy? Spending your money on things that don't solve the problem. Why don't you just stop and trust me? Why don't you stop just running... Helter Skelter, trying to solve all your problems. And just come to me. Isaiah 55 is written to Judah when they go into captivity in Babylon. The same thing God's telling the the children of Israel right here with Rehoboam. This thing is from me. So don't go and fight. Look what it says in verse 5. So Rehoboam dwelt in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. He built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bethzur, uh, Soko, Adulam, Gath, uh, Marashah, Ziph, Adaram, Lachish, Azika, Zorah, Ahijalam, Hebron, which are in Judah, and Benjamin fortified cities. He built strongholds, forts, areas that he could defend the nation from. And he fortified the strongholds and put captains in them and stores of food, oil, and wine. Also, in every city he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. So he decided, hey, well, we got to be able to defend ourselves. So he built it so that they would be able to defend themselves. In verse 13 it says, And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel, took their stand with him. Do you see that? All, from all their territories, all means what? All. Oh, does that mean most? Does that mean some? No, so it means all. All means all, and that's all that all means. Good, I'm, I'm glad you guys got that down. So it says, all 
the territories that the priests and the Levites were in in all of Israel. So how many Levites went to Judah? All of them. All the Levites went to Judah. Why? They're priests. Jeroboam, he's going to make a mess in the north. We're going to read about it in a minute. But Jeroboam, in order to control the people, what do they say is a great way to control the people? Rome did it this way. The Greeks did it this way. Uh, most major, uh, um, the Egyptians did it this way. I can't think of a, of a world empire, especially in the ancient world, that didn't use religion to control the masses. That's how they controlled them. What was Pharaoh? According to their laws, who was Pharaoh? He was God on earth, right? That's why you had to obey him. Who was Caesar? God on earth. That's why you were supposed to obey him. The the whole point behind it. So what does Jeroboam do? He develops a system. Don't go down to the temple. Where's the temple? Jerusalem. Every Jew is supposed to return to Jerusalem three times a year to worship. And so Jeroboam says, you don't need to do that no more. Stay here. We're going to worship golden calves. So all the Levites left. The other thing that we'll see is all the people who wanted to follow God left. Because in the south, that became the mark of the south. They wanted to follow God. In the north, most of the time. In the north, they didn't care about Him in the least. It says, For the Levites, in verse 14, left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. See, Jeroboam started his own thing. And he appointed for himself priests for the high places, for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left, listen, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So, if we look at the tribes of Israel as the twelve tribes, and we make the assumption that when the two kingdoms split, ten tribes went north, two tribes went south, and we don't see those two kingdoms as melting pots of all ten or all twelve tribes, we are mistook. In the north, you could make a case that none of the Levites are there. But in the south, it says everybody who wanted to follow the Lord came south. Everybody who didn't want to follow the Lord went north. So don't assume that some of Judah and Benjamin didn't go north. And don't assume that those ten tribes in the north didn't come south. So in both, you have representing the whole of the nation of Israel. My point is, there's no such thing as the ten lost tribes. Ten tribes aren't lost. They're all still there. Or the ten lost tribes aren't lost. All the tribes are still there. All the tribes are still there today. God preserved them. And we have that point made for us right here. It says in verse 17, So they strengthened the king of Judah and made Rehoboam the son of Solomon strong for three years, because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So for three years, Rehoboam walked with God. And people came south, 
to worship, and God was doing great things. Then it says, Then Rehoboam took for himself as wife Machalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and of Abigail, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. And she bore him children, Jeash, Shamariah, Zaham. After her he took Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom. You guys remember Absalom? He's the fellow with long hair. It was so purty. Though the Bible says he was purty. And his, and his uh, mom was purty. I'm going to make the stretch that Absalom's granddaughter was purty. And so when Rehoboam took her, it says Rehoboam loved Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and all his concubines. Again, important thing to understand when we talk about concubines. Concubines were wives without rights. They, they were, they, they were, you were still married. They were considered married. They just didn't have the rights like a, a wife that you paid for, that you paid the bride price for. So the description is different. Concubines and wives would be how they would divide it. He said he took 18 wives and 60 concubines. Because how many do you need? Yeah. Isn't that what God said? One. He said, you shall not multiply wives. Period. You shall not multiply wives. But the children of Israel and their kings had a problem with that. Now, the guy who had the biggest problem was Rehoboam's dad. So it's not hard to see why Rehoboam would have so many, is it? I mean, his dad had 700. And 300, 300 wives, 700 concubines? I get it backwards. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Too many. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Utterly, totally, completely. So look what it says. It says, Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief to be the leader among his brothers, for he intended him to be king. Now, who was supposed to be king? The oldest son, right? To him went the birthright. Maacah is like his third, fourth wife. His oldest son is not Abijah. But because Rehoboam likes him more and loved her the most, He's going to go against the law. He's going to go against what uh, what God had laid out. And we're going to see that in a moment. It says in verse 23, He dealt wisely and dispersed some of his sons throughout all the territories of Judah and Benjamin to every fortified city. And he gave them provisions in abundance. He also sought many wives for them. So, the sins of the father passed to the son. Now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. When he became strong, he forsook the Lord. This should remind you of an apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, That I might not be exalted, the Lord gave me a thorn in my flesh. Concerning the thorn in my flesh, I prayed three times that it would be removed. But the Lord said, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul said, Therefore, 
I will glory in my weakness, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. There are certain times God keeps us weak. He doesn't provide for us all the things we think we want, because if He did, we may turn our back to Him just like Rehoboam. When Rehoboam got strong, he forgot about the Lord. And he stopped walking in the Lord's ways and the people with him. The people stopped being obedient to his commandments and stopped keeping his statutes. Not only did they commit sin, they didn't care that they committed it, nor did they want to do anything to find forgiveness from their sin. And that's the, that was the point. Paul said, God keeps me in a state of weakness, so I'll boast in my weakness because that's when I'm strong. I'll boast in my infirmities. I'll boast in the struggle because in that, God causes me to live in dependence of Him rather than independence. The problem here in chapter 12, Rehoboam becomes independent of God. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Why? Because they had transgressed against the Lord. Remember the Lord said, Whom I love, I'll chasten. And scourge every son. So He says, Look, my people are off track, so I'm going to bring into their life something that causes them to look to Me again. So He brings Shishak, the king of Egypt, Shishak, the king king of Egypt, comes with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and people without number, who came with them out of Egypt, the Lubim, the Sukim, and the Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah, and he came to Jerusalem. So he conquered them. And he comes into Jerusalem. And it says, Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam, and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, therefore I have left you in the hand of Shishak. So the Lord says, Look, guys, this is coming to your life because you have forsaken me. You forgot about me. You got strong and you don't think you need me anymore. And so here's Shishak. You're not able to deliver yourself is the point. You cannot save yourself. You need me. And I want you to learn to be dependent. So Shishak is there. It says in verse 6, So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. What they're saying is, Oh, you're right, God. We forgot about you. We left you out. You're right. In Revelation chapter 19, it says that when people see the judgments of God, they'll say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. You're right. You're right. And so because Rehoboam and the leaders humbled themselves, it says, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them. But I will grant them some deliverance. 
My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants, so that they may distinguish between my service from the service of the kingdoms of the nations. So God says, okay, well, basically, they forget about me because they think I'm like a tyrant. So, I'm not going to remove Shishak from them. I want them to experience what what a tyrannical reign is like. So that they can tell the difference between how I guide and lead them compared to what happens to them in the world. Scripture says sometimes it is important to deliver someone over into the hands of Satan that their flesh may be destroyed and their soul saved. The idea is the goal or the most important thing is to bring salvation. And salvation, we're talking about the soul, not the body. Some people come to a relationship with Jesus Christ only because they're dying of cancer. Or only because some event, some horrific event that takes place in their life that brings them to that point. Or maybe it's a horrific event that happened in your life that they see. I don't know, but the point is, that's how God brings them around. That's how He accomplishes that salvation. So the Lord says, look, I want you guys to all make it. So I want you to see what life is like in the world without my protection. Let's face it, folks. You, any given day, you can go through the whole day and think, you know what, God didn't do one thing for me today. And do you have any idea what God did for you? Just because you didn't see the angels swoop down and and uh, <clears throat> help you gain control of a vehicle that was sliding in ice, or because you didn't even break loose at all on the ice, or because you know you don't have any idea what anything happened because you just went like every other day to work and you came home and it was just no big deal. You have no idea the things that God has protected you from. The assumption is, I don't need Him. So when we assume, I don't need Him, He holds off His protection. So you see, look, my hand's here. I'm with you. I'm here doing, working in and on your behalf. So He wants the children of Israel to understand it. So it said in verse 9, so Shishak, king of Egypt, came up to Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord. How much was in the treasures of the house of the Lord? Well, the Bible says Solomon had so much gold in there, they didn't even count it anymore. It was 666 talents of gold per year. You remember what I told you that was last time? Like 120 tons of gold. Something like that a year for 40 years. That's a lot of gold. Shishak took it all. He took the treasuries of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. All the stuff that Solomon had amassed, all that money, it's all gone. Not only that, it says he also carried away the gold shields that Solomon had made. Remember all the gold shields he made? The full length shields and the short buckler shields? He, he took them all. Shishak took them all. Took everything. 
Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place. Now why would you do that? Well, you know what I noticed that in this part of the palace, it looks kind of empty now. All those gold shields are gone. And we don't have no more gold. The Shishak took it all. So we'll use bronze. You want a bronze shield? I mean, gold was kind of cool. But bronze... You know, a lot of people like Rehoboam are going to take what they got and try to shine it up and make it look like gold. Shine up that shield. Put it in there. He even puts guards over it. Really? Nobody is going to come take those shields. The bronze shields are not worth anything. So there, there's not going to be <clears throat> any more run on those, but look what it says. He, he put them in their place and committed them to the hands of the captain of the guard who guarded the doorway to the king's house. I'm sure he was stoked. Oh, cool. Let me guard worthless relics now. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guard would go and bring them out. And then they would take them back into the guard room. So at certain times, the king wanted to be able to see just a taste of the grandeur that was gone. But it was all bronze. So when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to destroy him completely. And things also went well in Judah. Thus King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. Now Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. But he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. So the overall mark on Rehoboam's life is he did cool and he repented and he he humbled himself a couple of times. But he never prepared his heart. He never fixed his heart on the Lord. He never fixed his heart on Him. When life would get hard, he would go to the Lord, but he never made the choice. It's one of the things that set Daniel apart. When Daniel goes to Babylon, it says that Daniel purposed in his heart not to be defiled by the king's delicacies. Daniel purposed in his heart to live a life that would glorify God even when nobody else was looking. That's what made Daniel beloved. By the way, that's also what makes a believer. They purpose in their heart. What did Jesus say? Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Come with me. Live a life following the example that I have given. Purpose in your heart. I know you're not going to be perfect. I know you're not going to do it right all the time. I know sometimes you're going to fall short of the love that you're supposed to have for me. And when you do, I have grace for you. But that doesn't absolve us of a responsibility to follow God. It doesn't absolve us of a responsibility to walk with Him. Now the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet? And Avito the seer concerning the genealogies. And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So they never did get along. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah his son reigned in his place. As we work our way through Chronicles, we're going to see mostly our eyes focused on the southern kingdom here. Because... The writer 
of Chronicles, probably Ezra is trying to encourage the people who are coming out of Babylon. Remember how we got here. Yeah, you know, one of the important lessons in life is to remember where you come from. Remember the, the mistakes we make, right? The, it's good to have knowledge, but wisdom is the proper application of the knowledge that we have. So when we learn from experience or from other experiences, from watching other people, the proper application of that knowledge becomes wisdom. We want to walk in that wisdom. We want to make changes and adjustments in our life. Ezra is saying to the people as they're coming out of Babylon, they're coming to a land where their homes are all destroyed, everything's rubble. And Ezra says, guys, come on, I want you to remember two things. God blesses the people who follow Him. So let's follow Him and let's rebuild. And let's remember the mistakes that the ones who went before us made so we don't make the same ones. Isn't that what the Word of God's there for us for? Isn't that why we study the Old Testament and take a look at what lessons the Lord's laying out? Keep in mind, as we look throughout the Word, God said, I am the Lord, I change not. God didn't get saved from Old Testament to New Testament. It's the same. Language might be a little bit different. We've got to think a little bit more maybe about what we're reading. But the point is the same. He wants us to walk according to His commandments. But we are going to fall short, aren't we? Isn't that what the Bible tells us? And when we fall short, what is the blood that cleanses us? It's the blood of Jesus, right? It's the blood of Jesus that, that cleanses us. What was the blood that cleansed them? The blood of the lambs and goats looking forward to Messiah. You and I, we look back to Messiah. His sacrifice covers us. Their sacrifices showed that they had faith that God would one day send the Messiah. You get? Their still faith is in Jesus. They still know His name. You and I, we do. Looking back. Salvation, the same both sides. We want to learn. So we walk with Him. So we can be like Paul and say... Hey, I can boast in my infirmities that life's a little bit tough because because life's tough, I keep reaching up for God. I don't forget He's there. And ultimately, that's a blessing and it shows the love of God in our lives.